Public Intellectual is brought to you by the Forever Dog Podcast Network. You can find my show and more original work at foreverdogpodcast.com. And as a reminder, Public Intellectual has a Patreon. And in exchange for a small monthly donation, because we live under late capitalism, we will give you some more stuff. Some written stuff with show notes, some physical stuff with the inevitable tote bag of doom, and some now some audio stuff with bonus episodes featuring conversations with myself and my friends and some of the guests with what we're reading, what we're watching, what we're loving, and of course, what we are hating. So head on over to patreon.com slash public intellectual today and sign up. I was reading this book by Talia Blockland, Community as Urban Practice. She was writing about the conflict between people who are, for lack of a better word, locals, and then the increasing number of migratory people. Not migratory in the sense that we are used to thinking about it, with immigrant workers and refugees and other groups that we actually need for society to function, but that we continue to scapegoat. She was writing about cosmopolitans, people who move freely around the world, unattached to any one place because they are able to work remotely. I've spent some time as one of these assholes, just kind of hanging out for a bit in Romania and then having the urge to go see New Zealand. It's easy when you are in that mode to think, well, I don't owe anyone anything. I'm a citizen of the world, which means that I don't have to pay attention to local politics. I don't have to participate. The world is my oyster, etc. But Blockland mentioned kind of casually Cosmopolitans think of themselves as very worldly, but in fact, for the most part, they only communicate with and befriend other cosmopolitans. So if you are a digital nomad in Bali, like the group I profiled in a piece for The Outline, you pretty much only talk to other digital nomads, and they all have similar backgrounds, similar economic situations, similar experiences, and similar occupations. The cosmopolitans, then, might be the most provincial demographic in the world today. So if one is rootless, and if one does have the urge to travel, how does one begin to think about the ethics of that? This is not exactly the topic of Bruce Robbins, the beneficiary, but I've been thinking about this through his book. In The Beneficiary, and in his other work of cosmopolitanism, perpetual war, he asks what it actually means to be a global citizen when, as a Westerner, so much of the world has been molded to work for you, not with you. What does it mean to be an American out in the world when its dominant export is violence? I can't recommend these books enough. They are really very provocative and humane. What follows is, well, kind of a disjointed conversation with Robbins. I was so excited to talk to him. I had a hell of a time not just bouncing from idea to idea, and I should have done a better job. But uh, then uh, here, here we all are.
So when people use the word cosmopolitan or cosmopolitanism these days, it seems to be in this kind of like rootless digital nomad thing of, you know, your job is on your laptop so you can live in Costa Rica or Bali or whatever. And it's this idea that you don't owe anything to any place. Um, and this idea from the beneficiary that you actually, cosmopolitanism means that you owe things to every place, um, is kind of a radical, it's kind of a radical idea, completely counter to our culture as it exists in, in this current space, I think. I didn't realize you were going to be so complimentary. I mean, <laughs> thinking, I'd love to think of myself as totally radical. I'm afraid, you know, I'm not sure I can really aspire that high. Mm. But I certainly was trying to make being a cosmopolitan a little more strenuous, a little harder, because I was worried, and I think other people have been worried that it had gotten too easy. It's, it's funny, the version that you describe is actually not easy have laptop will travel. I think, I mean, maybe that's your life a little more than other people's. And I would say that has its own strenuousness. But the less strenuous version, the one that bothers me because it seems like everybody can already be that, mm -hmm. is the one where you really, really like ethnic food and you smile at people who look different from you and you think, there you are. You know, so the book I wrote before this, which has a subtitle, <laughs> the subtitle is cosmopolitanism from the viewpoint of violence. And the strenuousness there that I was trying to work on was, um, can you really call yourself a cosmopolitan if, like, when your country starts to bomb people, you go along? I mean, the ancient Greek idea of cosmopolitanism would suggest you don't go along at that, at that point. And I take that idea of cosmopolitanism still pretty seriously, and unfortunately there are lots of occasions when it seems relevant mm. to take that seriously. But when I was writing it, I was also thinking that I needed to write a book with another subtitle, and the other subtitle would be Cosmopolitanism from the Viewpoint of Inequality. So another thing, if you live in a relatively prosperous country and you know that that prosperity depends on a lot of people living in an anything but prosperous way, far away to whom you are causally linked, that's an unpleasant thought, which I think people need to be reminded of. And so basically that's the point of The Beneficiary, which does not have the subtitle Cosmopolitanism from the Viewpoint of Inequality, except in my head. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it, it seems like um, in this idea of economic inequality and cosmopolitanism that there's, there's a sort of uh, consumerist cosmopolitanism of like, well, if I get the fair trade coffee, then it, then I fixed it, <laughs> right? Then, then I'm not exploiting anybody. Um, but it's hard to get it past that point of, well, if you just buy the specific right consumer goods, um, then, uh, then you're fine and your karma has been cleansed and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, right. I mean, I am a person who ha has sought to cleanse my karma in exactly that way over the years. I have to say, in a sense, the hero of the book is Naomi Klein. And Naomi Klein, from very, very early on, I mean, she was kind of an advisor to consumers about how to do it and kind of how to fashion yourself 
mm-hmm. as a consumer, but a kind of ethical consumer. And I'm as liable to fall for that as the, the next person. But once I had kind of grabbed on to how interesting her set of concerns was, mm-hmm. I could kind of follow her wrestling with that exactly the problem that you lay out. You know, the fact that individual consumer choices are just not going to do it. Much as I, I, I'm ventriloquizing her, I imagine her saying, much as I'm good at telling people how they could do this and, you know, that it would make a difference, I know, they know, that it's not going to make enough of a difference. Therefore, we got to think bigger. It does seem like there is a difficulty in having a larger conversation about it because, um, when I was uh, doing events for the feminist manifesto that I wrote, so many of the questions that I got were these very specific lifestyle choice questions of, so if I'm a feminist, does that mean I can't get a pedicure? Does that, you know, because of uh, that, the sort of New York Times piece about how the, all the women who work in the nail salons are, you know, uh, making slave wages and kept, you know, et cetera. Um, so can I still get a pedicure? Can I still eat meat? Can I? Still? And so it doesn't seem like there's a public conversation big enough for the quandary that we have found ourselves in if we're still dealing it with it in a product by product way. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. I mean, I think if you focus it, you know, on the can I get a pedicure question or any of the other versions of that, you're going to come up finally to the point where there's no such thing as clean money. You, you know, you can't live a clean life in an unclean world. So if you care enough to worry about your pedicure, what you want to do is to see what you can do to pressure the larger institutions and, you know, clean up the world a little bit. So let's talk some shit about Peter Singer um, because I really like because I hated that book so much and it made Ooh. my skin crawl and um, uh, the the most good you can do right that was the, uh, um, and his idea that the most good you can do is through your money so you should make lots of money and then donate all of your money um, totally um, missing the information about what kind of jobs give you the most money, right? Um, so I, I enjoyed that you you drag him all over the floor um, at the beginning of your book and this idea, but um, still, it's like solving all of your problems right. with money. Yeah. I mean, I was a little unfair to him because, I, I don't know, I, I've made a business to be unfair to people, basically a whole career out of it. Me too. Um, <laughs> there we are. Here we are <laughs> Here talking we are. to each other. You see, it, it all works out. Um, You know, I found uh, him very um, inspiring early on because he was someone who really was a cosmopolitan in that good sense of worrying about people far away, you know, and asking this incredible ethical question, you know, um, is there any reason that's kind of the question why you should value people just because they're closer to you, you know, their Mm well-being over the well-being of people far away? So shouldn't you do something about it? I thought, it's really good that he's asking that question. It was kind of after that, that it's because he had gotten his, his talons into me by caring so much about it that I said, no, 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 this is not it. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, you know, did a little research and found out that the original essay that he had written um, urging people to worry about, you know, starving children far away, et cetera, et cetera, 
um, had been inspired by politics, not by some humanitarian disaster, but by politics in which the U.S. was very directly implicated. Mm -hmm. There was this astonishing um, consul in what is now Bangladesh, whose name was Blood, and he wrote a telegram, and that telegram is now known as the Blood Telegram, um, in which you know he told Kissinger, then Secretary of State, and Nixon, then President, we are responsible for genocide. You know, do something. Mm -hmm. And of course, we didn't. You know, although we were responsible in at least partly for this genocide. And that is what Peter Singer was referring to as merely a famine and a humanitarian disaster. And I, it, it occurred to me that, okay, he's a very smart guy. He's making this mistake. Many other humanitarians are probably also making the same mistake. They're not seeing uh, in humanitarian disasters the kind of causality and the kind of politics that we really have to encourage them to see. Right. It's starting from the aftermath rather than yeah, the source. Yeah, exactly, right? exactly. Cleaning up rather than preventing. Mm -hmm. um, but it also, you know, this idea that um, you should use your money to, uh, to solve the world's problems also then creates kind of, you know, the problem that we have in, um, in America right now, which is like the super wealthy are now taking over public education exactly. and, and utilities and, and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, I used to work in nonprofits and there was very much a thing about, uh, you know, uh, trendiness. Sometimes your cause was really trendy. And so it was funded really well and you could do important things. But a lot of times the stuff that needed to be done, you know, everything from sort of public health vaccinations and so on, that's not sexy. Nobody wants to have their name on a building that gives public uh, vaccinations. Um, they'd rather have a, a, a super excellent school or whatever. But um, yeah, so then it, what happens in the world it just depends on rich people's whims. Right rich unelected people's whims you know and of course with no questions asked about where all that you know money came from yeah i mean you know i i have a lot of time for nonprofits. i mean I, I it was probably good work that you were doing at the time and you know a lot of that stuff well okay maybe not if you see <laughs> not, <laughs> i was doing a very bad job personally the organization I as see, a whole was I was see. doing good stuff yes um and you know i there, there's a lot of cynicism out there about nonprofits or the non-governmental organizations as we call them on the at the international level but there you know a lot of people of, of seriously good conscience out there setting examples also which need to be known about as much as the the more cynical examples I think of the tsunami in what was it in Asia forget it hit a number of places I heard a guy from Doctors Without Borders saying you know, we looked at the situation and we said, the local people are taking care of it. We are not going to ask for money to deal with this. Mm. You know, it's because they get accused all the time of just asking for money all the time and building up their own infrastructure, building up their own staff, using the money for their own purposes. And here was a, an NGO saying, nope, you know, this is being taken care of, you know, locally. And who are we to, st you know, set, step in and tell the locals they're not doing a good job or whatever? So there are people like that. Maybe not enough, but some of them. Right, as opposed to Red Cross, which takes all the money and then forgets to set up, you know, shelters and so on and so forth. Right. Like, well, and Doctors Without Borders was actually founded uh, by 
people breaking away from the Red Cross that were really, really fed up with the bad behavior of the Red Cross. Not to badmouth the Red Cross. I used to live in Switzerland. There were a lot of Red Cross people around, but their record is not stellar. With the Nazis, for example, you know, where they just pretended that they didn't know what was going on in the camps. Right. Well, and you know, every every single sort of hurricane that it that it fundraises on in America and then doesn't. Right. Do, yeah. Right. So, um, so both historical and contemporary issues. Um, yeah. I mean, it, the, I kind of miss religion, um, or I kind of miss like old school religion in the sense that it it sort of provided an ethical framework in a way that. Now we pretend that we have to reinvent it all the time on how to act like a decent person. Um, yeah, I kind of, anyway. So. Okay, do you want me to <laughs> say something about that? Yes, I, please I, I, do. It sounded like you did, but then you were looking away, you know. <laughs> I <laughs> wasn't your best really committing. You don't really have to answer this, <laughs> Yeah, you know, I'm just babbling. But it is a problem. No, I, you're right. Um, that is a real failing. Um, historically, I think it's the worst failing. That is to say, if I ask myself, what I understand about where cosmopolitanism came from, you know, the monotheisms are certainly right up there, mm -hmm. right, you know, in, in terms of universalizing. I mean, they didn't act on it most of the time, rarely, actually. But, you know, the idea at least got out there that you have to care about, you know, all God's children in the same way. I'm not sure that that idea existed before monotheism existed. I don't know. It's possible that the, my polytheistic friends will, you know, get on my case about, about saying that. But mm -hmm. so it seems from here, anyway. And of course, uh, I mean, in my generation, I'm a lot older than you. Um, it was the solidarity movements uh, of the churches with Latin America that really set the example for, you know, again, a certain kind of practical cosmopolitanism when it mattered, mm -hmm. when a lot of people, other people, were not stepping up. Yeah. Um, I mean, when we're talking about sort of where we stand today, I forget which when Perpetual War actually came out. Um, uh, 2012, I think. So you're talking about it, uh, a sort of encroaching sense of uh, nationalism, a reinvest in reinvestment in nationalism in a couple of years ago. And now, of course, <laughs> um, you know, uh, he, he, just a couple of days ago, Austria elected um, a crazy all immigrants out uh, person. So, um, and also in America, obviously. Um, but it does seem like we have these two extremes of like cosmopol cosmopolitanism and then just uh, sort of a return of abject nationalism. Um, and you try to reconcile them um, in in perpetual war, um, but it's not actually, it's not easy to do. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that I'm aware of having tried to reconcile them. I mean, it more, more like, I don't know what to do with this is probably closer to the case. Um, I can understand, we, we've all had to make efforts to understand some of the populist, you know, surge in, in recent years and just, you know, not succumb to the temptation to, you know, see these people as, you know, whatever, deplorables, as we would all learn to say in the election, mm -hmm. um, or not to say. <laughs> uh, and, you know, to some extent, th this in a way goes all the way back to where you started. Um, 
cosmopolitanism has been hijacked by neoliberalism. And if it's, you know, the corporations, the multinationals, that look to people like they embody cosmopolitanism, the easiest thing to do is to say, well, no to all that. And you're saying no to, you know, different things mm -hmm. at the same time. I mean, to something good at the same time as, as something bad. But there's no question that, you know, the neoliberal champions have, uh, have identified themselves, unfortunately for the rest of us, with cosmopolitanism in the eyes of a lot of people. So, I mean, I, this is not a reconciliation. It just, it helps explain some of the backlash, not, not all of it. Um, right. I mean, the, you know, the word sort of, um, well, the populist, but the sort of deplorable idea. Um, and one of the things that, one of the parts of your book that I, I liked so much was this idea of, um, I mean, you were talking about uh, a backlash to consumerist culture that was get was that was come through misogyny. So because you hate women, <laughs> somebody no, no. hates. Could you just say that in some other way? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, because someone hates a woman, they will look at and sort of recognize this sort of consumerist culture or assume that this is a female trait, but can get to a sort of ethical framework even if they are kind of um, holding this kind of vile idea. Um, which I appreciated that because uh, I'm I'm from Kansas, <laughs> um, small rural Kansas. Um, I have a lot of people in my life that I don't in any way uh, agree with most of their stuff. Um, but there are shared value systems between us. But I feel like so much of the left is like you have to have a checklist of these are the, all you have to believe all of these things, or we can't even have a conversation about anything. Yeah. Um. It's funny, I was just hearing some very cool things about Kansas uh, this, this past weekend. Really? From somebody from the Union of Concerned Scientists. What, what's, what well, are Well, I mean, as you know better than I do that there's a long progressive tradition in Kansas. Oh, yes, Which yes. is why the what happened in Kansas thing is so weird, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, up with a lot of consciousness uh, of what's going on in the world and what's going on in the world of big capital. So... Um, the Union of Concerned Scientists is trying to tap in a little bit to that in the name of science and climate change, mm. which, of course, is a huge problem for farmers and a very, very visible one. Yes. It's sort of concrete one. You know, you have this president who's saying it's a Chinese plot. Well, it's not, really. And look, you know, look at, look at the weather you're getting. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's just apropos of Kansas, but about which I really should keep my mouth shut because <laughs> what do I know about Kansas? I've been to Manhattan, Kansas, but uh, oh god, okay, yeah, well, yeah. that's we're, that's we're like my territory. A that's leftist woman from Pakistan made a curry for me, and I thought, okay, this is America, you know. Yeah. The, um, so what did I want to say? The historical discovery. This is apropos of the misogyny business that really blew my own mind is that early on, the idea that uh, your life here depends on the labor of people far away who are invisible to you, that that, you know, people could have that idea for the first time thanks to misogyny. Mm. 
because there was this tradition of men looking at women consuming things and wanting to blame them in some way. And it was, I mean, I call it misogyny because it was insanely double standard-ish in the sense that the men were consuming the same things, right? But I mean, no, I mean, it's it's not like silks and satins we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. It's like tea out of a porcelain cup. Mm. Men drank the same tea out of the same cup. So what is it? I mean, it, it seems pretty crazy that they, they should have been pointing the finger at women drinking tea out of cups and saying, you know, that comes all the way from China and people had to work and for hours in the fields and, you know, ships brave the waves and the storms in order to bring you that tea. Yeah. It's nuts. But history works doesn't work in a clean way. And the discovery that I made is, you know, here's a, a point that was made by people who were really full of it. Uh, and yet it had a kind of dialectical value that could be separated off from the initial circumstances under which this stuff was said. And once the insight was out there, yes, your life depends on the labor of people far away that are not visible to you, that could, of course, be transferred to men also, as it had to be. And other conclusions could also be drawn, like your consumer choices are of political import to the lives of people far away. So, as I say in the book, you had these abolitionist campaigns led by women, or women women were very, very active in them, mm-hmm. saying every spoonful of sugar that you put in your teacup is like a pint of a slave's blood on a, uh, you know, on a plantation in the Caribbean, which is an amazing kind of dialectical turnaround, right, where you take this thing that Women shouldn't have had to be the ones who were thinking about this in particular, but who bought the sugar? Well, they did, right? And who made the tea? They did. So they drew conclusions from it. And, you know, we are all the beneficiaries, as it were, of the, the logic that, that started from something bad but brought us, you know, an insight that's really valuable. Yeah, it, I mean, it does seem like a lot of this starts with... Um Shopping, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Like, the sort of consumerist culture of the uh, the waves of understanding about, um, um, yeah, I mean, coffee, for example. Coffee. With, with, and the sort of rise of fair trade and, and this sort of thing, mm-hmm. which is still, a, a, you know, the domestic female space and seems to be women that kind of um, start these campaigns and, and are most active in them. Um but yeah, it's always it's always back to um, to shopping and trying to fix the problem via the right kind of shopping versus the wrong kind of shopping. Um, I'm not totally against that, and I say this as a shopper. Yes. Okay, yes. as a grocery shopper. <laughs> oh, do you do the grocery shopping? I sure do. Um, that's that's very that's very enlightened, sensitive. Yes, You're just, you know, can mm. I just supply some more adjectives? <laughs> yeah, <and> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a savior, a savior of of, of gender. No, norm. I just I just really like cooking. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so there did seem to be after the um, the election of Trump a new kind of awareness among the left that we hadn't been doing enough, or uh, you know we wouldn't be in this situation that we that there was a bubble or a sort of blindness or whatever. Um, and so now 
there's a lot of wandering around of like, well, um, what can we do? What should we do? How do we organize? Because we become so individuated in the same way of like, if I, you know, shop better, I'll save the world rather than I have to sort of uh, collectivize in some way to apply enough pressure to, you know, uh, actually influence policy and, and so on and so forth. Um, but it seems like it's really um, unpopular, and you talk about this a little bit in the in the context of uh, Naomi Klein. It's really unpopular to ask people to make real structural changes to the lives they're living. Or, um, I mean, you do you make the point in, that if inequality is going to be wiped out, it has to be a radical change in how we live our lives, but because we're so um, reluctant to ask that of anybody, um, how do we get to that point? I mean, even Naomi Klein was, you know, um, right. I, I like to be comfortable. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we all do, and um, there are times in a, in a certain frame of mind it just looks impossible. I mean, politicians won't talk about it, right? Belt tightening? Belt tightening, anyone? You know, right. you might as well just raise taxes. Um, it's it's not the kind of thing that um, people are sort of yearning to put into their campaign speeches. So, again, one of the inspirations for the book, and you know maybe it's just of symbolic value, but I think it's more than symbolic value, is the fact that George Orwell got in trouble when he was working during World War II for the Ministry of Information by being too enthusiastic about rationing, wartime rationing. Um, and I make the argument that the reason that he was saying this, uh, this thing that even his employers in the government didn't want him to say, that it was so popular and so on, is that he was thinking about global economic equality in a way that he'd been talking about it in the 30s. Mm -hmm. And he still had to worry about it because he was... Uh, his job was to try to win anti-fascist solidarity, and he was worried that no third world country would even think about solidarity with the, the British or the Allies because they're so much poorer, right? So for him, this is my argument anyway, it's evidence that the rich countries are capable of, with enthusiasm, tightening their belts and equalizing um, uh, their, their consumption. So the coincidence is that Naomi Klein kind of says the same thing, in, in not in her last book, but in her next to, next to last book, um, This Changes Everything, um, that when she's looking around for historical evidence that it is possible for this to happen, um, and it really has to happen both in the interest of global economic equality, which is what Oral was thinking about, and doing something about, about climate change, which... Naomi Klein is thinking about equally, um, it has happened, right? I mean, you know, if there's enough of an incentive, and war up to now has been that incentive, well, why should that be the only incentive that would work? You know, if this sea level rises 25 feet and suddenly downtown Manhattan <laughs> is underwater, and you talk about underwater mortgages, that really would be underwater mortgages. That's also an incentive, mm -hmm. you know, and or the farmers in Kansas, you know, just uh, that could work too. In other words, 
we are not such uh, <coughs> so stuck in our ways as creatures that it is absolutely out of the question historically that we should ever do anything like that for for any reason. Wartime proves that it has happened, mm-hmm. and now maybe we can come up with a peacetime equivalent. Yeah, you hear these arguments a lot about um, sort of justifying um, war uh, or aggressive international action because it it spurns technology and innovation and and so on and so forth. So we need it. We need okay, to go I'm to war. I'm not saying that. No, 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 no. I'm really not saying that. No, no. I'm not saying that you are. I, I'm. It just seems like an argument that that's made on a regular basis as a sort of um, rather than looking at um, why are we still doing this stupid thing in the sense that you know we find out where our troops are when some of them get killed. <laughs> Um, in a country that a, nobody had any idea a, that we a, had trips there. A geography lesson. Yeah, right? it is. Hey, look, there's a new place on the map. We got corpses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, but war has a a kind of um, uh, aura in our culture of nobility and importance for whatever reason. Whereas a huge catastrophe like environmental disaster. Um, encroaching environmental disaster we can't give it that same meaning and we can't give it that same sense of purpose we'll always justify military action um, under sort of nationalist language but as far as um, saving ourselves from uh, the sort of um, global changes in climate we we can't we can't even get that conversation started oh well um, call me a naive optimist but you know, I would rephrase what you just said and say, up to now, we haven't been able to switch over from, let's say, war to climate change and mm-hmm. get people to see that the issue is kind of its survival, one mm-hmm. way or the other, and to get them to think that climate change change is as much an issue of survival as wartime is. Um, it will be a good day for a number of political causes if we can pull that off. I. I don't see why we shouldn't be able to pull it off. I think the efforts are really pretty recent and not all that many people. I I speak for myself. I mean, I haven't been talking about climate change all that all that long. And in in retrospect, I think, you know, how could I have been so dumb as to not be doing that? But I was thinking social injustice, social injustice. You know, I had my thing and the ecological people had their thing and and now we all have to have the climate change thing. I mean, we really do. And of course, when I say now, in fact, it's been a while that we really needed all of us to be banging on that drum. Yeah. And the sort of economic inequality makes it easier for us to, because we have the sort of largest, one of the largest impacts on uh, global uh, change, uh, climate change. Um, we can wait it out because, you know, we can just kind of move in <laughs> inland a little bit more and, 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 and adapt and buy our, the resources that are being wiped out from other countries um, and let other nation, a couple other nations Kansas, drown Kansas. entirely. We'll oh, yeah. all move to Kansas. Oh, my God. I don't, I don't know. I don't know, man. <laughs> I know there's a lot of room in Kansas, but not that much room. There's not that much room. And there, it's very flat. Everybody would be – you could see it. it no. Um, but um, but yeah, I mean, we have this buffer of um, of time and and money that other a lot of other nations do not. Yeah, I, I guess that's true. I, I also think that well, the country as a whole is is much too optimistic, and in particular, like 
everything that's happened since we entered the digital age has given people the idea of a techno fix. Yes. You know, whatever it is, our scientists and engineers are very, very ingenious. They'll come up with something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, frequently they do come up with things, but this is really too big for anyone to have faith that there can be a techno fix. So not to be, not to keep harping on, on religion, but um, do you think it's possible for a sort of widespread decentralizing of the self? Um, oh, I'm not sure what that means, but you're going to explain. Okay. Yeah, I mean, so religion provides a, a, um, a method and a understanding of the motivations for destruction of the ego, for effacing the ego at least, uh, and to think about a larger project than yourself. Historically, what is there that has provided that outside of religion of um, m my little self doesn't matter, except for, except for war. Uh, war and religion are the only two kind of um, examples I can think of. Huh. How about sports? <laughs> 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 No, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I actually I don't mean to be flippant, but right. no, I mean, I think there's there's a lot. There's much more of that happening where you, you know, kind of merge yourself into a larger collectivity. I don't know. Um, I, for me, it actually is, is sort of true, actually, the sports thing. But, you know, politics of various sorts. Mm. Right. I mean, you know, feminism is surely one of those things. It was not all about you know exploring the self it was also bonding together with other women with similar circumstances I mean why not mention the Harvey Weinstein thing now or the me too's what 500,000 me too's in 24 hours yeah I mean come on and you know it's not all let me tell you about my unique experience it's on the contrary this is something we share mm -hmm. right so there's I mean the women's march after you know the, with the inauguration or whatever it was um, you know, that was an incredible moment of solidarity in which I think, you know, it's not submerging the ego exactly, but feeling that I am most meaningful at this moment to, in the way that I am bonded with all these other people, all of us different, right? But mm -hmm. right now, bonded together, feeling the same things about the same things. I think that happens. You know, you could say it doesn't happen enough. I think it is also a secular phenomenon. I mean, I'm a very secular person and sort of argue against the idea that in order to feel any meaning in life, you have to be a religious person. And, you know, secularism is just empty and abstract and bloodless and whatnot. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I don't accept this description of my life. I mean, on certain days, it feels that way, of course. Right. But, you know, no, I mean, I think there are lots of things that, that make me feel that my life fills up and connects me to other people without, you know, without religion. Mm -hmm. No, I, I mean, the only reason that I keep bringing up religion is that um, whenever there were, you know, um, or not all, all the time, but a lot of times before there were sort of these revolutions um, in consciousness, it was preceded by a sort of religious uh, revolution in, in some way. Um, like the rise of 
uh, feminism and a lot of political revolutions in the in the 19th century, early 20th century were preceded by um, spiritualism and um, uh, sort of black magic cults and, and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. And um, so it seems like something has to happen in the unconscious before it can happen in the conscious. Um, oh, that's really interesting. But um, so when I think about putting your ideas in the in the books into the actual world, it seems like there has to be some sort of unconscious change. Um, and I would love it if that could happen outside of religion because of um, how terrible almost all religions are fun- <laughs> fundamentally. Um, but it, I, I, I don't know if it, I don't know how it, how it changes. I don't know how change like that happens otherwise. Right. Well, I don't know how change like that happens at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and it always seems like, you know, to use a religious term, a miracle when you see it happen. And I start the book by suggesting that there's something like a minor miracle simply when, you know, George F. Kennan says in, what is it, 1948 or whatever, anyway, sometime around then, um, that we have, you know, X percent of the world's um, riches, resources, with a much, much smaller percentage of the world's population. Um, The point is going to be to hold on to that advantage. And people thought this was a scandal that had to be covered up. And I thought, this is kind of a miracle. When did, I mean, what I would call a kind of cosmopolitan sensibility mm-hmm. uh, get installed in people and how to the extent that they actually don't think it's fair to have 5% of the world's population and 30% of the world's resources? It's just not fair. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, that's not, that sense of fairness is not natural, right? I mean, I think in earlier times, it's like it was like, grab what you can, Um, and I don't think, I mean, any moral norm existed that would judge you for grabbing everything that would criticize you for grabbing whatever you could. So if it's true that in America, for whatever reason or or other, or in other places, um, there is this sense that we should not, it's not from our merit and our virtue that we do this, but, you know, we have grabbed. And, well, maybe we're not quite ready to give back, but, you know, we at least have a guilty conscience about the situation that we occupy. Mm -hmm. That strikes me as somewhat miraculous and, you know, worth trying to figure out. Um, Yeah, it does seem that maybe the income inequality is becoming much more of a a part of um, our uh, conversation than Mm -hmm. the war part because it's not controversial at all um, for us to be, you know, there was no outrage when a sort of, you know, a drone took out another sort of civilian uh, wedding or funeral or something. It was always just like, eh, you know, there, it didn't, it didn't make the impact that something like um, the, you know, when the, uh, in Bangladesh, a factory uh, collapsed and killed. But that was a news story that people talked right. about and, and <clears throat> wanted to know what they could do. But with the drone thing, the idea of our safety is so sacred to us that we're just like, whoever we have to kill, like, let's just do it. Yeah. I mean, we will jump to collateral damage and not realize that, you know, for um, the people who leave car bombs or, or whatever, they don't. It doesn't really matter if, like, their families are being blown up. Whether we can consider that 
collateral damage or not. Mm -hmm. When your family gets blown up, your family gets blown up. So there's a tit-for-tat thing that's going on that we just don't have a way of calculating. That's true, and in quite a number of places. Yeah, and even, you know, feminists sort of, um, I remember the the campaign among feminists to um, support uh, the invasion of Af- Afghanistan under the sort of um, idea of liberating, you know, women. Um, so a very sort of cosmopolitan war of like, look, we're yeah, going yeah. to bring you our, we're going to bring you our freedom, ladies. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, and you know, the terrible thing there is, you know, they're not entirely wrong, in the sense that you know, often they're, you know, they're horrible. There's a ton of horrible stuff that's being done. Mm-hmm. But it's you know almost equally horrible to use it as an excuse for an invasion. Yes, you know, and that's of course the, the mistake that we make over and over again. And ideologically, it works. It's amazing how it works. Does it, by the way, does not contribute in any degree to women being treated better by Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, um, it is. We do like to sort of uh, you know other situations we like to uh, you know India is a place where rape happens and you know women are in um, treated badly in Afghanistan but we're fine Hollywood is as we know a bastion of progressive feeling oh sure about very, very very liberal <laughs> yeah yeah um, no it is, it is kind of uh, amazing how we do that with the rest of the world and let them carry the sort of you know shit for us so that we don't have to see our own forever This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.